Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. It's good to be with you here, even on this cold morning. We are coming to the end of our Ezekiel series. We'll have one more uh, sermon next week on Ezekiel. I wanted to do just a little bit of a recap, so maybe you can kind of get a sense of of the bigger picture and where we've come from. So we decided to, to, to preach out of the book of Ezekiel because it really highlights a season in Israel's history where as a nation they were uh, collapsing and had widespread trouble, and it seemed to really be uh, a similar type of circumstance that we find ourselves in these days. Uh, not nearly as bad as what they were experiencing, but obviously a lot of trouble in our own, in our own city in our own nation, and really globally. Um, and we saw six problems that God, through Ezekiel, uh, highlighted that led to their trouble and to their collapse as a nation. There, they had corrupt leadership. Uh, there were conspiracies going around and people believing in a variety of conspiracies that created a lot of conflict and division and violence. Uh, there was the oppression of the vulnerable, the immigrant, the poor. Uh, there was a dishonoring of the family and its place in the culture and in the community and how it provides stability. Uh, there was rampant sexual immorality and sexual violence. And they had forgotten the Sabbath, which was, along with honoring fathers and mothers, uh, was a was a unique commandment that God gave the nation uh, that put a structure in their weekly rhythms that really forced them to consider what God had done for them. It was a, it was a weekly vacation compared with the other nations that God would continue to abundantly provide for them, um, even with working one day less a week and enabling them to experience peace and rest and happiness and joy as a consequence of God's abundant blessing. And so that was a, a, to be a continual reminder of God's grace and goodness in their lives. And they had forgotten God. They had neglected the Sabbath. They had profaned it. So these six problems were, were instrumental in bringing about the collapse of Israel, and it took an emotional toll. And so we looked at we, looked, we took a week and we looked at what it meant to suffer in very serious ways uh, because of our own sin and because of the sins of other people. And then last week we looked at the call that God gave Israel to repentance and what that means to uh, completely change direction and return to God, remembering Him, and then to pursue a, a life built upon renewed hearts and minds that God gives us through Jesus Christ. And so we, we've kind of highlighted the, the, the collapse and extended uh, time on the troubles that led to the collapse, the emotional toll it took, the call to come out of that, that collapse, the call to come out of that trouble and that, emotional, that negative emotional state. And these last two messages are on, on hope. As we repent, we, we come into a vision of the world that God has for us um, as, his, as his people. And specifically, we've got to translate the promises that God has given to Israel here and to see how these things apply to us as a church. And so today we're going to focus on uh, the hope that God gives us as his kingdom, 
And next week, we're going to look at the hope that God has given us in our calling as witnesses to this world. And so we have hope as the vision uh, as we conclude on this in this series out of Ezekiel. Now, just within our own church over this past year, we have definitely felt and seen the need for a better world, uh, a future hope. We have experienced isolation due to sickness or the threat of sickness. There has been family and community uh, division and fragmentation just due to the political and social and cultural environment. We've had, we've had individuals and families in the church that have seen a decrease in their income, and some of our people have lost their jobs altogether and, it look, and are looking at, at new careers. We've had people that have been victims of injustice and slander and oppression. We have seen great challenges with our kids in schools, the effect that that's had on them and the effect that that's had on our households and trying to both do school and raise our kids in the midst of, of the pandemic and all of the challenges that has brought. And we've had death. Just this past week, the Anderstrom family suffering a, a very untimely and sad uh, death of their baby, Ivy Joy, who was just 37 weeks along just almost ready to be born. What a sad situation. So we've, we have experienced, again, just within ourselves, a lot of experiences that have affected us that, that cause us to, to long and hope for a future world, a better world. And then if we look across, not just, if we, if we just look outside of our own church family, we see again, a lot of suffering in this world. Not only the suffering that we bring upon ourselves, but natural disasters, things like this pandemic, which have just, again, globally has, has created a lot of suffering and a lot of pain and a lot of death. And so we read a passage like the one out of Ezekiel today, and it's one of a number of passages that the prophets have and a few passages in the New Testament that gives us a picture of a, a future world and a better world. And so if we were to ask ourselves the question about what if, if we think of our personal lives, what if I could eliminate all of the suffering that I experience as an individual or as our families? Sickness, physical health, mental health, problems with our jobs, problems with our incomes, conflicts in our relationships, all of the things that, that, that we as people suffer. If we could just think, what would it be like to not experience any of that? And then if we took another step more, what if we could, as an entire society, what if our culture, what if our cities and nations could experience uh, no crime? I was reading uh, just yesterday, there was an article in the Star Tribune about just the the massive percentage increase of violent crime that has occurred in the Twin Cities over the last year. I think it's up 20, 25% from the, from the previous year's patterns. So what if we could eliminate all of the crime? What if we could eliminate 
the, the problems of broken families and the economic problems of, of not enough jobs or not enough skills for the jobs? What if we could eliminate the, the, the division that exists in our governments? What, we, what if we could eliminate the division that exists between our nations? Just think of, I mean, we could make long lists of what a world would look like as individuals, as cities, as society, a world would look like without any of the evils. And then if we just think about things on a global scale, what if we could wipe out climate change? What if we could wipe out wars? This is the kind of world that this passage in Ezekiel is giving us a vision for. It's not, a, it's not a super rare passage or vision in the Scriptures, but there aren't very many of them. It's not giving us a picture of heaven. You know, and it's unlikely. I mean, we, we seem to want to strive for this. Obviously, we as human beings are constantly striving, especially in our world with the, with the emphasis that we put on progress in our day and age, we do believe and think and we work for a better world. But we know that as human beings, it's unlikely outside of literally a lot of miracles that we're going to experience it. But again, God has a vision for this and it resonates within us because there's something within us that, that knows it should be possible, which is why I think we, we work at it so hard. Now, the scriptures do speak of a new heaven and a new earth. It's in the very last chapters of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, but that is not the vision. That is not the vision that is being described here. We're not talking about the eternal kingdom. We're not talking about the new heaven and the new earth. We are talking about a nation on this planet amongst the other nations of the world. God is going to single out a nation among all other nations. And if you can just imagine, I mean, we have, you know, we're always hearing about what, what Russia's doing, what China's doing, how they compare to us. You can kind of see the emergence of nations and these nations that are striving to kind of be on top. You know, when, when we had uh, the, when the capital was, was ransacked by the mob on January 6th, you know, Vladimir Putin said that uh, this just goes to show that the American understanding of, of, of elections and development uh, is, is not all of what they crack it up to be. And then he's obviously experiencing a lot of trouble right now with the arrest of, of that, uh, that dissident and all of the protests that are... So we, and we, so we see, there, we don't have a nation on this planet that has it figured out. And so there's a unique aspect to this vision that God gives in this description of the future nation of Israel. He's not talking about wiping away everything clean and then having a, a one-world government under Jesus Christ. That will, that will happen. But prior to that, this is going to be a season through which, in this current state of things, kind of with the, the feel that we have of things as nations scattered across the globe right now, Jesus is going to return as king and rule a nation 
among the nations. And this nation, he is going to bring to the place of prominence and preeminence and show, Jesus Christ is going to show the world, here is what it means to live as a kingdom. Here's what it means to live as a people where prosperity and peace and unity governs us. Jesus Christ is going to do that. And the nations will see that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what he says here at the end of this passage. They will see that he alone has the capability of ruling a nation that is governed in such a way and provides the type of life for its people that we all aspire to. So God's vision is for a future nation among the nations. Now, it's not just the government that's the problem. So as, as the description of this nation that Ezekiel goes into, um, you know, we quickly think, you know, this $1.9 trillion um, relief package is, look, it looks like it's going to come online, and that's going to provide what seems to be a lot of financial relief across a number of, of, of things that are in need in our, in our culture. And it's, and it's material prosperity, but it's the second part of the description here in the book of Ezekiel. There are two things that God says he's going to do. The first thing that God has got to do is change our hearts and change our minds. He says he's going he's to cut out our hearts of stone and he's going to put in hearts of flesh. So stone is, is cold, it's hard, it's unrepentant, it doesn't want to acknowledge vulnerabilities, it doesn't want to acknowledge the need. So God is going to cut that heart of stone out of his people. And he's going to put in a heart of flesh. You know, as I, as I think that all of us, in the, if we've been in the church for a while, sitting on our house churches or talking with others, there, there, we do have a sense, and people state it very explicitly at times. Just over the last few weeks, I was sitting with a, with, with a friend, and he, and he said, I, I need a new mind. I need a new mind, and, and I need to feel cleansed. Decades of his life has brought a lot of pain, and it, and it weighs on his mind, his own sins and the sins of others against him. And, he'll, and he just stated, I need to be cleansed. I need a new mind. And that is exactly what God is promising here for his people. There have been millennia, okay, and described in the scriptures, but then also all of history, where, where we as people are unable to make a world that we need, the world that we envision. Part of it is the challenge of the world that we live in. The bigger problem is our own hearts and our own minds. So God is going to transform us from the inside. And we spent some time last week on that, and I'm not going to talk a lot about that today. This process of repentance with new hearts and new spirits and, and what that means and how Jesus Christ gives that to us and makes us new. New loves, new desires, and the power through the Spirit to accomplish it. And then the second thing he promises these are the promise of new material conditions. And so this is where we see all of the problems are at. Income disparities and a lack of jobs and, and all of these kind of material things. Lack of housing, lack of medical care. And all those things are true. All those things are true. 
And so there's a recognition by God that, that material, the material aspect of what it means to live as human beings in the flesh in this world needs renewed as well. And so he says, I am going to remove you from the nations. You'll no longer be enslaved. You'll no longer be oppressed. You'll no longer be victims. You will have sovereignty as a people with me as your king, but, you, but it's not an enslaving service that you give to me. It's a freeing service. So they're no longer going to be slaves under the weight of oppression of others. And then he says, I am going to turn the dry and desolate lands into tillable and abundant lands. There are going to be trees with fruit that is beyond measure. So there is going to be, and this is obviously a sign of what we need to thrive as human beings from a nourishment standpoint. When we pray, we ask God to provide our daily bread, what we need to survive. Paul says, with food, clothing, and shelter, these things we shall be content. So God is going to provide all of those things to the point where we, no long, we, we don't have discontent. All of our material needs are going to be provided by God. And then he goes on to talk about um, the infrastructure. So when we talk about cities, you know, obviously part of the bill, the $1.9 trillion, is infrastructure, roads and bridges, these kinds of things, fortified cities, homes. That is what God has envisioned here through Ezekiel for the nation of Israel. So across the board, God is going to exert his life-giving power to bring change across the entire spectrum of our need and bring us into a place where suffering is no longer our dominant experience. And it will be a highlighted nation among the nations of the world. The nations of the world are still going to be going on. And he does it for the sake of his name. The very beginning of the passage, it says, not for your sake, Israel, and that's repeated like nine or ten times throughout this passage. It is not for your sake. It is not because of your works. It is not because of your righteousness. And, and it seems like God may be <laughs> highlighting our tendency to just constantly destroy ourselves. And it is. That is part of it. There's a recognition that we need to have as human beings that outside of God's presence within us and outside of his correction of the corrupt world that we brought, uh, we are completely helpless and vulnerable. We, we cannot build human life without destroying it. So part of it is for us to recognize that we are always in need of him. But the second thing, and, and I think that this is, a, this is a, a comforting truth. God made promises to man and woman in the garden that there, that there would be a child that comes from humanity that brings life back to the world and destroys death. God made promises to Abraham that through him would a nation come that would bless all of the other nations of the world and that his descendant, that his descendant would be heir to that promise and that all of the other nations of the world would be blessed. God made promises that he's got to keep. And God is a promise-keeping, covenant-keeping God and I would much rather have God's um, promise to fulfill this based upon his good name rather than us being in a place of having to deserve it. 
I'd, I'd much rather have God fulfilling his word out of his goodness and out of, out of the integrity of his word and his desire to keep his name and desire to have a good reputation among the nations of the world who have all known about his promises. I'd much rather having, I'd have him making those promises for that sake rather than looking at our lives and saying, you know what, I, I don't know if those people deserve this good stuff or not. Because if, if we're honest with ourselves, we all would have to say that uh, life indeed is not fair, and that's a good thing, because none of us deserve really anything good. This nation this nation in a later passage of Ezekiel, and, and Ezekiel, it, it repeats things, uh, some things, many times throughout its, its a long book. And we didn't have time to read all of the various passages that talk about this promised future nation. But there's one just a few chapters later that describes it in a little bit more, and I wanted to read it. Because this promised future nation comes through the promised king, the promised king of David. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. I will set them in their land and multiply them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. And so we see here, once again, that it is through Jesus Christ that God is going to bring this nation about. So we must ask ourselves, what do we do with this vision? And I think we need to recognize, you know, we are in exile too. Peter starts out one of his letters to those who are in exile. Are we not waiting for Jesus to rule as well? This, again, this is not the vision of the eternal kingdom that we have in the book of Revelation. This is a vision of Jesus' kingdom in the midst of the nations of this world. And it's a world much like ours. It's going to have crops. It's going to have homes. It's going to have buildings. It's going to have cities. It's going to have governments. There are going to be structures in this world that is envisioned by Ezekiel that is it's just like ours. And it's not a it's not a vague future. You know, a lot of other religions, you know, the Eastern religions have a vague future. Like in in with reincarnation, you don't know what you're going to be. You don't know when the cycle is going to stop. You don't know if it's going to be a, a good future that you have or a bad future. That you, it, it's, it's ambiguous. You're uncertain about your future state. In Islam, there is more specifics about what a future world is, but there's no guarantee about who's going to be there. You can't know with certainty that you are going to 
come out ahead in the balance of your good deeds and bad deeds, which is the judgment system for Islam. With Christianity, you can know for sure. And then the vision is presented, not some vague, mystical, spiritual sense. It is a very concrete vision. Crops, roads, cities, homes, nations, governments, these kinds of things. And so I think it's important that we recognize why God throughout so many passages in the prophets describes a world that's very much like our own. Why are these the kinds of images that God gives us for the creation of a hope in us? Well, I want to look at three things. It's one, first of all, it's, it's, it's a vision that we can actually hope in. Now, hope is the certainty, not the wish or good desire. It's, just, it's the certainty. It's a confident certainty that a future good is going to happen. Okay, and specifically with this passage, the future good of a world much like our own now, except without all of the problems. So there's a certainty around that. It is a for sure thing based upon the name of God, not upon our own actions. So that increases the certainty of it. And this, this hope creates within us an energy. We are energized by hope. That's why we get up and keep working. When we lose hope, we, we lose our energy. We lose our motivation. Hope is what motivates and moves us. And this appeals, this vision appeals to, to not only our minds, because we, ima- we can imagine this world. We can imagine the flourishing of humanity. We can imagine abundant crops and abundant food. We can imagine homes for everyone and strong cities for everyone and infrastructure that's consistent, governments that operate. We can kind of envision this. So it's appealing to our minds, it's appealing to our bodies, it's appealing to our emotions, because we already experience to some degree these things and have a sense of, ooh, wouldn't it be great if there were no problems with these things? See, we can't, we can't have hope in something that's unfamiliar to us. Like, you know, you read um, you know, some of the passages in Scripture that describe heaven as, as, as like, the, like if you're reading through the Gospel of John or some of these other prophets and, and, and they describe being taken up into heaven and they can see, you know, the, 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 the image of God and the sea of glass and, and, and an unfathomable number of, of spiritual beings and these strange creatures that are singing and, and it doesn't really seem to be an appealing future. It seems beautiful. You know, but we, it's hard for us to connect with that type of a world. Now, we will dwell in God's presence. We will see radiant beauty. But when, when God is describing the world that we are to look forward to, it has a lot of the characteristics of the world that we're used to, just without sin and problems. So that's the first thing. It's, it's a world that we can actually Hope in. It's a vision for the future that we can actually hope in that makes sense to us and already appeals to our, to our minds and our bodies. The second thing is that it acknowledges, this type of a vision acknowledges the importance of a material world. See, the world was created by Jesus, through Jesus, and for Jesus, this material world. So it, it has value and purpose to Jesus. 
The, the spirit isn't good and the flesh evil. Our spirits can be evil and our fleshly bodies can be evil. But God says, I'm going to give you a new spirit and the promise of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we are baptized into his death in our bodies. We are baptized into his resurrection and look forward to a day where we will have a resurrected body in a material world that is a lot like the one we're in now. Jesus came into the world, he died as a human being, and he resurrected in a body that he's going to eternally possess. No longer is Jesus going to find himself in all of these various forms and images that you see throughout the Old Testament. When you see and heard God in the Old Testament, that was Jesus. That was the begotten, the image, the audible sounds and visions from God himself, who is invisible. And God is going to, through Jesus Christ, rule in the midst of other physical nations. Government is important. Unity and peace and prosperity as nations is impossible. Those is possible. Those things are important to God. So we see that the material world is an important aspect of God's vision, his eternal vision. And the third thing I want to point out is that the rule of Jesus Christ in his kingdom has already started. Now, this is painting a picture for a future kingdom under the rule of Jesus Christ. But when Jesus Christ came, he said, the kingdom has come. When he was in Capernaum in the synagogue, he read from Isaiah, and then he closed it and said, this world has been fulfilled in your, this, this word has been fulfilled in your presence. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. There's a passage in the, at, the, at the beginning of the book of Revelation that I think it's, 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 it brings this, this really, I think, to a very practical place. Because the kingdom now is manifested in the churches of Jesus Christ. That's what the kingdom is now. He, he says, John, so John is writing the book of Revelation, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So these seven churches that he writes to, it represents all of the local churches, because it's seven. He says, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us, the seven churches, a kingdom. Priests to his God and Father. The kingdom of God is manifested through local churches now. We are that kingdom. There is a future nation coming that Jesus will rule on this earth among other nations. That is coming. Until that time, we are the kingdom. The kingdom of God where Jesus rules, where his government applies, is through the local church right now, spread throughout the entire planet. So this is not just a vision for our future, this is a vision for us now, because Jesus said the kingdom has come. The kingdom is us, the churches. Those of us who are in Christ, as the scriptures say, we have new hearts, and we have new minds, and we have new spirits. That has been fulfilled through faith in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection on the cross. 
and that this, this kingdom life now is to have an effect in our material world right now under Christ's rule. And it's not going to look just like this vision in Ezekiel. This world is yet to come. But for the here and right now, we are to manifest aspects of the kingdom in our presence in local churches. So what does this look like? Well, first of all, it means that we have to be, as God's people in his kingdom that follows his statutes, we have to be unified in mind and spirit with the king, with the king for his kingdom. And this has to be our most important identity and allegiance. Not earthly government systems, not earthly political or economic systems. These have certain codes about them, and we living in this culture have to, to take on some of these aspects of our culture so that we can live in our culture. We have to, as, as one author has said, we have to live in this hierarchy of cultural codes. But he says this, we confess, his name is Rodney Clapp, he was a former uh, editor at Christianity Today and a prominent scholar and writer over the last several decades. He says, we confess a God that we understand as creator of the cosmos, so the front of all creativity, and as vulnerable savior, so granting creatures freedom and risking their rejection in order to win their unqualified love. What we strive to do is check all other stories by the story of Israel and Jesus Christ and to live by a hierarchy of codes that always sees the Christian code as the most relevant and indeed as uniquely and finally true. To live, and what he's arguing in this, in this chapter is that our culture puts upon us a lot of different ways that we need to live in order to live in our culture. Economic, social, education, all these different things that we, as people that live in this world, have to comply with. But we have, at our highest calling and allegiance, the calling of Jesus Christ and his instructions to us and his identity to us as his people in his kingdom, in his family, the local church. This is the most relevant, he says, and we need to have it as the most true and the one we have our greatest allegiance to because that's where the kingdom of God is going to make itself known here on this earth. That's where our loyalties have to first and foremost lie. And with new hearts and new spirits and new minds, this, the kingdom life should manifest itself in our midst. All of the, the Christian virtues that are listed throughout you know, the, the apostles of Jesus Christ throughout the New Testament, things like kindness and generosity and grace and forgiveness and forbearance and bearing one another's burdens and, for, and forgiving one another, of, of being wronged rather than wronging somebody else, which is, which is the gospel. Jesus, who was willing to take on suffering to save us from suffering. That is how we approach life in the community. And he calls us together so that we can engage one another in love and good deeds, so that our new hearts and new minds are manifested in us, and so that the world will see that people is different. And it should also reflect some aspects of the material prosperity of kingdom life. This, is a, this isn't the prosperity gospel. This isn't the get-rich gospel. It's, it's, this, 
it's what, it's what is taught throughout the scriptures. The people of God, the kingdom of God, have the resources, okay, not just material, but also spiritual and emotional, communal, so that when there is need within the kingdom, when there is need in the local church, there are those who have the, the resources to bring comfort to meet the need. And then as Paul says, when those people, are, those people that are comforted are then able to comfort when others who experience suffering and need. And so whether we're talking about um, spiritual resources or physical resources or the resources of grace, of love, of compassion, of understanding, that whole constellation of resources that God gives us through the Holy Spirit, when there is a need in the church, God has blessed others in the church to meet those needs. You know, throughout this season, we've been spending a lot of time with people in need. And one of the things I hear is that I don't know what I would have done without the church. Now, there's also other sources of help. I mean, this is, we are in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and he's going to utilize every aspect of his creation to meet his needs and his goals. And people have had families that have also brought blessing to them. And we have government, we have things, but at the heart of Jesus and his work is the local church. At his, that's his kingdom. That's why, that's why I've, I've heard people saying, I don't know what I would have done without the church. We will have the resources as the kingdom. That's promised. Every spiritual blessing has been poured out. But as was the case for Israel, we cannot lose sight of our need for Christ, of our need for God. If we're going to engage in the cleansing work of helping others, we have to have our minds constantly renewed on the undeserved grace that God has given to us through Christ. We can't help others. We can't extend grace. We can't, we can't accept, we can't take wrong upon ourselves and help others even though they're wronging us unless we are filled with the understanding of the gospel that Christ has come in undeserved grace and love for us and has extended himself. We, we can't live that life without, without having that grace upon ourselves. We're not, we're not able to meet in generous and joyful and sacrificial ways the physical needs of others unless we recognize that we are operating with the abundant riches of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul says that, that I am confident that God will meet all of your needs according to the riches and glory in Christ, which is unfathomable and beyond our imagination. If we're, not, if we're not looking upon our resources, our physical resources, as extensions of the unimaginable and unfathomable resources in the glory of Christ, we're not going to be able to give joyously or generously or graciously. If we're not experiencing the comforting power of Christ through our, spirit, through our own spirits, we're not going to be able to help those who are overwhelmed with suffering and sadness when they're facing the pain that still exists on this earth. And God will do this. God will do this in us. He will raise us up. He will make us a people. We will be, as Paul says, a light among the darkness in this world for the sake of his name, which again is reassuring and comforting. Because the burden is on Christ and for God to fulfill their promises. We simply must abide in him. Let me pray. 
Lord God, thank you for this, this, this vision of the kingdom that we have in Ezekiel and, for, and, and that the kingdom has come through Christ and that, that we as your people, as your kingdom, can experience a lot of and many aspects of this vision uh, because we have your spirit in us with new minds and new hearts. So God, our prayer is that uh, you would make us into this kingdom. Unify us, God. Strengthen us with each, towards each other in love and in grace and forgiveness that we could indeed be a, a people of light in this increasingly dark world. In your son's name we pray, amen.